Welcome back to the Big Picture podcast series. This week, we're joined by Mehmet Yigar from the University of Greenwich. Our speaker this evening is Professor Mehmet Yigar, who is Professor of Economics and Institutions at the University of Greenwich. Um, since joining the University of Greenwich in 1990, so he's one of the few people that's actually been here longer than I have, um, Mehmet has been involved in research, teaching and curriculum development at both undergraduate and postgraduate levels. He's been a research coordinator and a programme leader. Mehmet has led research projects funded by the European Commission, the Department for International Development and the Economic and Social Research Council. Currently, he is Deputy Director of both the Greenwich Political Economy Research Centre and the Institute of Political Economy, Governance, Finance and Accountability at the University of Greenwich Business School. So, to deliver this evening's seminar entitled Does Intellectual Property Rights Protection Spur Innovation, Technology Diffusion or Economic Growth? Professor Mehmet Uha. Thank you. Thank you very much, Colin. Um, and thanks for everybody for uh, attending this webinar. The topic today is uh, slightly or quite a bit different than uh, the topics that have been discussed in the uh, big picture seminar series over the, the last couple of years. Uh, and I think it is a welcome uh, change in the uh, in the uh, content in the sense that a it is a, a, a presentation that reflects the kind of research that's going on at the university or part of it and secondly uh, it is about an issue that is um, highly related to the conditions that we live in, particularly the COVID-19 pandemic and the role of innovation and the innovation policy that play that, that plays into, uh, into in, in that context. So I will um, look at uh, the effects of intellectual property protection as a, as a particular instrument in innovation policy. The aim is to establish whether intellectual property protection as an innovation policy instrument help deliver uh, higher levels of innovation, technology diffusion, and economic growth. Now, this doesn't deal with the uh, pandemic context, but the implications of IPP, intellectual property protection for innovation, particularly in technology diffusion, uh, has got some implications that may uh, give some insights into how intellectual property protection has been um, accelerating or decelerating the search for cure, let's say, in the context of um, the COVID-19 pandemic. So although it is a technical uh, issue in economics, 
the policy implications are uh, quite uh, relevant. So what am I going to do? Uh, I'll take you through some slides that looks at the market for intellectual property protection. How big is this market? What institutions are existing in the world to ensure compliance with intellectual property protection? Then I will look a little bit at the theory that links intellectual property protection with the outcomes that I'm interested in, innovation, technology diffusion, and economic growth. After this summary, I will summarize the literature, the empirical literature. And what I mean by empirical literature here is that the empirical studies that uses data on intellectual property protection and investigates its effects on the level of innovation, the level of technology diffusion, or the level of economic growth. Uh, then I will introduce you into an area of research that I also work in, which is meta-analysis, because this is the methodology we use to synthesize the evidence that has been reported by the empirical literature. And when you try to synthesize the evidence from reported uh, evidence, you have to deal with two issues, uh, selection bias and heterogeneity. This will come clearer as we uh, get to these sections. I'll say a few words about the meta-analysis methodology, uh, and then I will examine the evidence and then conclude. So what is the size or can we get an impression of the size of the IPP market? Yes, uh, if you do a Google search, uh, you will find a lot of information about the intellectual property market globally and in the world. And then you will find out that there are uh, certain institutions that are very active in this area. Uh, the search that I have done suggests that the stock of patents and trademarks in 2008, 18, sorry, was 14 millions and 49 millions respectively. Since 2013, this stock has uh, represented an increase of 5.2% for patents and 15.5% for trademarks, respectively. The uh, geography of the market includes all the world, and you will be surprised to find out the largest a share of the global patent applications is in Asia, not in Europe or North America. Uh, 65% in Asia, North America 20%, Europe 11%. This is patent applications. Uh, the average cost of litigation when uh, one party complains about another party infringing the patents 
is between one to six millions in the US and between one to three millions in the UK. So you can imagine here there is a huge uh, litigation market where specialized lawyer firms are keen players or major players. Uh, in terms of research, well, if the market is large and uh, there are lots of uh, interesting stakeholders, then this attracts a lot of academic research to see what's going on. In 1990, the Google Scholar uh, search hits for IPP uh, were 5,640. This has increased to 42,000 in 2018 representing an annual growth rate of 10%. So it is a growing area of research, large area of research and growing area of research. Then the institutions and the uh, intellectual property uh, protection uh, realm are firstly the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, uh, this is a global platform uh, for uh, information services and uh, cooperation in, since 1967. And it is a self-funded agency of the United Nations. So it has got semi-intergovernmental uh, uh, nature. It's not a voluntary or uh, non-governmental organization as such. The, there are also national and regional patenting offices. Uh, there are 10 regional offices. One of the uh, largest ones are the European Patenting Office. Uh, and there are regional offices in Asia and other places of the world. And these regional offices exist or coexist along with 200 patenting and trademark agencies nationally. There has been also uh, the 1994 TRIPS agreement, the trade related intellectual property uh, rights agreement uh, in the context of the uh, trade negotiations. Uh, this TRIPS agreement uh, made compliance with intellectual property protection as a necessary condition for uh, trading partners. And as a result of that regime change, there has been an increase in the level of compliance and in the level of patenting that you saw in Asia. Uh, indeed, after 1994, China, India, has emer have emerged as big players in the intellectual property uh, protection market. So this is the uh, descriptive environment, if you like. Now let's look at the theory. I'm sure you uh, are familiar with the arguments in favor of intellectual property protection. And these arguments are uh, important. 
Uh, one argument is that the innovation outcomes are highly uncertain and therefore uh, there is a, a tendency for suboptimal investment in the level of innovation. If the also there are also knowledge externalities, which means that the knowledge produced by one party can be used by other parties without contributing to its costs, the, the incentive for investment in innovation will be even lower and hence the level of investment in innovation will be low. So intellectual property protection is necessary to correct this, the, the, this incentive effect of um, the um, knowledge externalities. Also knowledge externalities uh, coexist with near zero marginal cost of imitation. So not only knowledge uh, spills over, but also when it spills over, it can be imitated with, with, with uh, zero or very, very low marginal costs. Once an idea becomes available, it can be imitated by another party, even though it doesn't uh, contribute to its cost. These are the arguments developed in the early literature in the late 50s, early 60s. And we still really uh, refer to these work in, the, in our teaching of knowledge or innovation economics in economics or in business in general. Uh, however, there are equally important arguments against IPP. Uh, some people argue that when a future innovation is dependent on access to existing knowledge, strong IPP can hold up future innovation. Uh, this is a, a common uh, issue, uh, a frequent issue discussed in the literature such as Baldwin and Lewin, uh, Heller and Eisenberg, 1998, Besson and Musk in 2019 are uh, some of them. Another argument is that one size IPP may be counterproductive. Uh, there is an um, article by Ajemolo and Akchit, who happens to be my, uh, from, from the same country that I am from, but they, live in, they work and live in uh, America and the United States. They are one of the major contributors to the debate. Uh, they argued against one-size-fits-all uh, IPP policy. Earlier arguments by Stiglitz and Das Gupta. 1980-1988. They demonstrate that too many uh, IPP may induce too many patents with little scientific value. In other words, IPP, the mere existence of intellectual property rights protection, can induce innovators to patent lots of useless uh, discoveries uh, just because they think they can uh, uh, they can be useful for other peoples, and if it's useful for other people, they should pay for it. Market power. Uh, 
there may be uh, market power implications of the IPP if you protect the intellectual property rights for some period. During that period, the innovator has got a monopoly right or monopoly power in deciding how to use and when to use that innovation. And this creates some distortions in the uh, market. Indeed, these arguments have been uh, known for a while for economists. And uh, one of the economists who is not known for being a uh, sort of uh, non-orthodox economist, Mahdou, uh, he was testifying to the to, a con to the congressional, congressional hearing in 1958, and he said, if we did not have the present system, it would be irresponsible to recommend instituting it. So he was very skeptical, even in 1950. Then uh, the theoretical arguments, of course, becomes more complex when you look into, well, into the dynamic relationship in the innovation process. If future innovation depends on past innovations, uh, there will be uh, subsequent and complementary innovations uh, affected negatively or adversely. The quality of the inventive activity may be affected adversely due to patent traces and the innovators may behave strategically in a way that will uh, maximize their monopoly profits uh, rather than maximize the level of innovation. This is a typical result that you obtain when you have monopoly power in the product market. The firm tries to maximize revenue rather than uh, quantity. Uh, maximize profit rather than uh, maximizing uh, the, 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 the level of production by restricting, in fact, the level of production. What about the empirical literature? The empirical literature uh, uh, investigates the effect of IPP on four related outcomes. Innovation, productivity, and uh, technology diffusion. We extracted evidence from all this literature, which is 91 studies, empirical studies reporting, 1,626 effect size estimates. So each study report one or more effect size estimate for the effect of IPP on innovation or on growth or on diffusion. And we extracted all this information. Uh, of course, the, uh, we need to distinguish between different outcomes. Uh, in other words, uh, we know that the, the outcomes of innovation, growth and technology diffusions are related, but they are not the same chicken. So we treat them separately and together at the same time. And also we know that these are measured with different units. Hence, 
the effect size estimates cannot be comparable, may not be comparable. To make them comparable, we standardize them using the partial correlation coefficient and the Fisher Z transformation of the, of the latter. Uh, the standardization is common practice in, in, in statistics, in medicine, uh, uh, and social sciences as well. So when we pulled all these together and looked at each cluster that deals with innovation, diffusion, productivity, and economic growth, we have four clusters. Here is the summary measures. The median effect is positive and equal to 0.081 in um, the growth cluster. However, this median effect does not mean much because some of the effect sizes reported are significant statistically, some are not. So the measure of significance is the t-value. T-value close to two is significant, less than 1.67 is usually not significant. So this is not significant. In the productivity cluster, the average or the median effect is 0.05 almost, uh, significant. Innovation, it is 0.055 in significant at 10%. In the diffusion, it is even smaller and insignificant. So the general picture suggests that the effects are either insignificant or they are very small if they are significant. How do we know they are small? They are small if they are if the effect is less than 0 0.07. Uh, there is a uh, yardstick developed for synthesizing evidence from published research uh, based on partial correlation coefficient by Christy Kulega. It's uh, known as how large is large. So we use that metric here to say that the effect is either small or insignificant. Here it is not small, it passes the threshold, but it's not significant. More importantly, when we look at the distribution of the evidence, uh, the partial correlation coefficient on the horizontal axis and its standard error is on the vertical axis. Uh, the inverse of the uh, standard error, but pay, pay attention, the standard error increases as we come down rather than increasing. So we have this funnel graph here, which suggests that these uh, observations at the top have the smallest standard error, high, hence the highest level of precision. Uh, statistically, they are more informative than the effects here, for example, where the standard error is um, larger as we go down. What these figures show that, that the effect sizes are um, heterogeneous. And the extent of heterogeneity can be established by looking at these dashed lines. Uh, in the uh, final graphs, these are the 95% confidence interval limits, which suggests that any observations beyond these limits is heterogeneous and the heterogeneity cannot be explained by sampling variation or uh, estimation techniques. 
there are study specific or author specific uh, fixed effects, if you like, uh, that causes heterogeneity. So the first uh, impression from the IPP effects on growth here on the left and on productivity on the right suggests heterogeneity. What about the average effect? The average effect is the vertical line. The growth seems to have an average effect slightly greater than zero. Uh, productivity average effect is almost zero. Similar results obtained for innovation on the left and in, uh, technology diffusion on the right. Another characteristics of the existing evidence is that there are lots of observations beyond the 95% confidence interval to the right. The issue of publication selection is not uh, an issue in economics only, it is a general issue, but it has to be, it has to be addressed. And we address it in the uh, matter regression methodology, which is explained here, and I'll skip these, they are a bit technical. Uh, all I would say is that we treat it is each outcome as separate but also related and therefore we exploit information from the full set when we estimate the average effect for each particular cluster. That's all I would say. What did we find? Well, this is what I found and what we found with my co-authors. The average effect of growth after taking into account selection bias and heterogeneity, unobserved heterogeneity, is insignificant. Whether we use the partial correlation coefficient or Fisher's Z, the effect of IPP on productivity is also insignificant. Innovation is negative but insignificant. Diffusion has got a small effect and a positive effect and significant. When we look at the selection bias, we see selection bias in the cluster of productivity, innovation, and diffusion. The level of selection bias in the growth is not statistically significant. Although this test has got low power, in fact, it reflects the level of um, the level of uh, the number of uh, observation outside. Uh, the 95% confidence level. You can compare this with this, you see the more evident of selection. Compare this uh, growth with innovation, you can see there is more evidence of uh, selection. So the test, although has low power, tended to capture the extent of selection bias in the evidence base more or less accurately. So, the conclusion we derive from this uh, finding so far is that there are uh, lots of reviews and uh, reports on the effect of IPP on innovation, technology diffusion, or uh, productivity. Uh, the majority suggests that the effect is insignificant or even harmful. There is a minority, and this is a minority that consists of legal scholars, some legal scholars, not all of them, 
and what I call advocacy literature, such as reports commissioned by uh, WIPO or by the OECD or by national governments, which comes out uh, in, with sanguine claims about the fact that the IPP has got positive effect on innovation, productivity and growth. And in fact, it is essential to keep the IPP policy uh, in place. So the evidence we found here is empirical, reproducible uh, evidence that suggests that these sanguine arguments are not supported by the evidence, hence they are misleading. The contribution we make to the literature is that the narrative reviews that are pessimistic about the effect of IPP cannot make, cannot make reproducible and uh, verifiable conclusions. They can make conclusions based on their uh, Way in, on the way in which they review the literature. This is a comprehensive review of the literature and it takes into account not only the information we like, but also all the available information. Then we said, let's think about some scenarios and see whether the effect size differs. In one scenario, we said, let's concentrate on journal articles that uses relatively more recent data, hence data that is less subject to measurement error or wild variations in the quality. And data uh, articles that uses instrumental variable technique uh, that takes into account endogeneity. This is a common practice in uh, social scientific research where uh, the, there may be endogeneity. This is scenario one. Scenario two, we said, let's also take scenario one as a base and add to it data averaged over five years or more that smooths the business cycle effect. In scenario three, took scenario two as the base and add evidence from funded research. We add this because the funded research in this area, uh, in these published articles are usually uh, from uh, government or um, public funders rather than private funders. And therefore they indicate two things. They are less likely to be subject to selection bias. And secondly, this funded research has gone through two filters. One is the research quality filters uh, used by the uh, funders. And secondly, the filters that is used by the journals, journal articles, we call. Anyway, these are the scenario, three scenarios we looked at. And what we found, what we found is that in scenario one, there is no effect on any of the um, there is no significant conditional effect on any of the outcomes, growth, productivity, innovation, or diffusion. This is the case in scenario two. And in scenario three, where we focus also on funded research, in addition to 
criteria in scenario one and scenario two, the effect on diffusion is negative and significant. So basically, uh, we what we find from this uh, what called multivariate meta-regression that takes into account the sources of heterogeneity, observed heterogeneity, the evidence suggests that, again, there is no statistically significant effect on uh, innovation, productivity, or growth. And the effect on diffusion is likely to be negative. So, what I will do in the last couple of minutes is to take you, uh, to give you some insights from three studies that are close to home, in the sense that they investigate the effects of IPP on scientific research that we do. Uh, Budish et al. 2015 investigate the effect of uh, IPP on underinvestment in long-term research. Sampat and Williams, Williams 2019 investigate the effects of patents on follow-up innovation in the context of the human genome, uh, uh, the uh, genetic biology. And Budish et al. report that IPP diverts private research investment from long-term to short-term research. Uh, this is very important. Uh, and actually, it fits in with many of the theoretical predictions in the theoretical literature because the um, long-term uh, research projects are large in size and the outcomes are less certain or are less easy to convert into marketable products. Uh, they, uh, they, they are subject to underinvestment. What, we, what the authors find that the introduction of IPP does not correct for this trend or for this absence of incentive to invest in long-term research. In fact, it exacerbates it. Why it exacerbates it? Because it, it, it induces new um, preferences in favor of easily patentable, but less long-term research. And this is something you would expect if, if, if people uh, are rational maximizers, they would do that. So the IPP, what doesn't deliver its uh, intended uh, effect. In Sampat L. Williams, they said that they report that patents have no practically significant effect on follow-up innovation. They did, not they did not encourage or discourage innovation in, in, in the, in the follow-on innovations, such as gene-based tests that may be affected by the patenting of the human genome. Uh, however, the expectations of the policy is that this patenting of the human genome will encourage future innovation. So there is no support for that. A third uh, study uh, by Mori and Ziedonis 
it looks at the effect of patenting on academic research, quantity and quality of academic research in three major US universities. They don't give the name, but you can guess MIT, uh, Stanford, and maybe uh, one, one I can't guess at the moment. Uh, they, 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 they investigated the effect of the change in law, US law, in 1980, the so-called Bile-Dole Act, which strengthened the patent protection for universities. Um, what they found is that the change in law in 1980 had practically no significant effect on patenting activity, the number of patents. And also the patented research was less impactful, i.e. it attracted less citations than before. But technology transfer and patent licensing activities have increased. And this is again, as you'd expect, if people are rational and they can use the IPP as a strategic uh, uh, tools or instruments to maximize their uh, profits or their uh, revenue, they would engage, they would increase this activity of patenting and licensing, uh, which generates extra income for university. So yes, the patenting, uh, patent and trademark law change in 1980 was good for the university's income from patenting and licensing, but not good for the quality of the research. So, Conclusions. IPP effects on innovation, productivity, and growth are insignificant. This is the case both in the bivariate and conditional estimations. The small effect on technology diffusion in bivariate estimations is driven by higher royalty payments by or FDI inflows, not proper measures or not exact measures, let me say, of technology diffusion. Because technology diffusion is an important concept, but it's not observable. So we observe it by the level of IFDI flows or by the level of royalties one company pays to the other to use its uh, trademarks, for example. Uh, but these measures are imperfect. Uh, the overall effect on diffusion is highly likely to be uh, negative when uh, certain criteria are used. Hence, the evidence refused the sanguine claims in favor of IPP encountered in advocacy literature and in some legal studies. It also indicates that the IPP pessimism in most narrative reviews or qualitative reviews is justified. Any policy conclusions? I think the evidence we found suggests or supports a few policy conclusions. One, blanket IPP may be suboptimal. There is theoretical evidence on that, as I said uh, in uh, Ajamolo, Akchit, etc. Uh, we found evidence, empirical evidence that strengthens this argument. There should be different uh, regime, different different terms for the patents, different coverage, and different uh, 
duration. However, this opens up a new Pandora's box and uh, there are so much differences between industries and uh, technologies, technology classes that agreeing on different terms and different durations or breadth may be quite complicated. Uh, so what we're suggesting is not a, a, an easy option, but it should be considered. Secondly, the effects of IPP on inequality should be factored into the policy design. So far, you, you don't hear anything about the effect of IPP on income inequality or uh, labor uh, and capital share inequality across countries or within countries. They are assumed to be neutral or they are, they, they are not factored in. However, this is not, be, this is not the case. Uh, as we see, IPP involves market power and market power involves uh, the appropriation of the consumer surplus by the supplier. Uh, and therefore, uh, it has got implications for inequality. It should be considered. The fact that the IPP does not increase welfare through innovation or productivity or technology diffusion strengthens this case. We find that it doesn't. IPP institutions should be should cease to be closed shops. The World Intellectual Property Organization is an agency of the United Nations, but it is not funded by member states. It is funded by private funders. We don't know who these private funders are. And therefore, there should be more transparency uh, in, um, in the funding of the uh, intellectual property uh, regime uh, watchdog at the global level. Secondly, uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization and the national and regional IPOs should provide more information about their interactions with lobbyists. This is something that the European uh, Union does. Uh, they declare the number of visitors who visited uh, the commission or a particular committee. Does this end corruption or favoritism? I would not say yes with a high degree of confidence, but at least it puts a check on them. And therefore, I think a similar regime can be uh, thought about in the context of IPO uh, or IPP uh, protection. That's all I have to say. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, I know I just realized I uh, talked more than I should, but uh, I hope the content was good enough to justify it so that's all i would say thank you thank you for listening to the big picture podcast series you can find our podcast on spotify apple and google podcasts subscribe to never miss an episode